You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. Suzanne Falter is an international speaker, writer, and essayist whose work has been featured in Self, O, More, and the New York Times. After losing her daughter Teal in 2012, she discovered the healing power of self-care and now hosts the Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women podcast. She is the author of multiple self-help titles, including The Joy of Letting Go and fiction books, including the Transformed series. She joins us today to talk about her newest book, The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Teresa. Thanks. I loved the book, Uh, not just the content, but also the the reflections and the questionnaires to really help us hone in on some of the factors that you talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. But I thought for our listeners, maybe we could start with you sharing sort of how you got on this path and what prompted the program and book. Well, I was an extremely busy woman, uh, one would hope, right? Fact of the matter was in the spring of 2012, I had a few years prior changed my life dramatically and moved across the country and come out as a lesbian and just everything was different. And I'd gotten into my first relationship with a woman and I suddenly found the whole thing falling apart and I had just moved in with her. So I lost the relationship and the home. And simultaneously, I was burning out on a super, super intense online business, coaching business, and that ended. And suddenly I was left with nothing but my little car and my suitcases and kind of my stuff was in storage. And I was driving around the Bay Area trying to figure out what to do with my life. And my daughter, Teal, had come out to the Bay to join me and just completely out of the blue, she died. She died from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. And prior to her death, I was already feeling like things didn't work in my life. And like 
I was really caught living, pursuing things I didn't care about, like money and doing work I didn't care about. And the whole thing was falling apart. But then for her to suddenly die, and in such a mysterious way, we went to dinner in a restaurant. And two hours later, she was collapsed from a cardiac arrest that has no medical cause known. And she was 22 years old. She was an epileptic. And sometimes, very, very rarely, people with epilepsy just die like this. It's a phenomenon that's not understood called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. But even that is like really not understood if that was what caused her cardiac arrest. So for all of my striving and my ambition and my overwork and my needing to, you know, be so bossy and difficult and (laughs) unkind to people. She was the diametric opposite. And she really wanted to kind of go through life and the world spreading joy and happiness. She was just a very, very uh, open, free-spirited, unencumbered person. And in that six-day period, she was revived but never regained consciousness. And she had extensive brain damage. So during that period of six days, I was in by her bedside at the hospital, and I really began to understand that I had to change my whole life, and that if she was going to die, which I thought she would, I was going to have to become a much better person and try to live the rest of my life in a way that would have really honored her and would have been more like what she would have done. You know, always an advocate for kindness, always an advocate for slowing down, for turning within, for tuning into your needs. And um, these were things she had learned living with epilepsy. And she had written a lot of them down in a little notebook that I found I was given after her death. And in that notebook was so much wisdom, a lot of it very basic to self-care, setting boundaries, creating time for yourself, listening to yourself, meditation you know, just the basics that so many of us never spend time on. But, you know, unlike me, Teal would go work in a restaurant and make some money and go to the airport and just plunk down a bunch of cash for the first destination that caught her attention, and she'd go. And it was usually somewhere on the other side of the world. So watching her example and reading this notebook, I began to understand that self-care was critical. And without it, I was never going to get through this, and I was never going to become the better person I wanted to be. So that's what really pushed me to write down everything I had learned, because I didn't work again, uh, Teresa, for two years after her death. I just totally stopped, and I just made my whole life a continuum about tuning within and honoring my needs. And sometimes I needed to cry and fall apart. Other times I needed to think I was going to go for a hike and drive to the hike and then turn around and go home and not be able to get out of the car. And that all of it was okay. Sometimes I needed to drive around and cry. You know, sometimes I needed to uh, go have a massage or, or sit in a hot tub. You know, I, I just needed to listen to myself. And as I did, I began to regain my sense of who I was. I began to understand what I really cared about and what my values were. And I created a life that was completely different that really reflected what I wanted and needed and makes me to this day the happiest I've ever been. 
Well, that's really commendable that you took such a tragedy and turned it into something that's helping so many people. So I really admire that. Thank you. You know, one of the things you share in the book is that you don't have to have a crisis to get to the point of vastly improving your life. (laughs) And I say this a lot, not in those words, but why do you think so many of us don't make changes until there's a major crisis? Why do you think that is? Well, there's a couple of things at play. And the first one is we don't believe we deserve it. Or over that might be the conversation, it's not possible, I'm too busy, I can't get to it, it's really okay. I was telling myself, it's really okay, you know, because the changes that would have been required to give me a functional relationship and everything was just wrong. But I was like, it's okay, it's fine, you know, because I couldn't get myself to acknowledge what was true. And underneath that was the belief that this was as good as I was going to get. I didn't really get to have the happy life, the serene life, the great love relationship. That's just not what I'm wired for. And that's a big lie, because once we recognize how much dysfunction there is in our lives and how much we need to set boundaries and we need to say no and we need to create time for ourselves and how much we're missing because we have not put basic faith in ourselves, then we begin to wake up. And usually it takes a crisis, a mortal crisis often. We are confronted with a serious illness or life-threatening illness, or our spouse is, or there's a sudden divorce, or in my case, a child dies. Whatever the case may be, we are pushed to a place we don't usually go to And then it's like, well, okay, so everything's over. I might as well just rebuild it the way I want to. And suddenly we don't care. And the things that are important become glaringly obvious. I thought right up until Teal's death that earning a whole lot of money was the most important thing. And then I went through two years of not working and living on very little money, a tenth of what I had earned before. And, uh, you know, it was fine. It was totally fine. I found I had safety net. I found that I my savings. I had a friend who invited me to live with her for free. I mean, I and I remember one of my relatives saying, I'm so sorry you have to live like this. And I was like, what's the problem? This is fine. I'm actually enjoying it. And now it was so, really fine, right? Yeah, it really Not just was. Saying it. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that's a good answer because I know and I did it. I waited till I had a crisis. And my feeling at that time, and this was years and years ago, but it was, well, now I have nothing else to lose. Pretty much. I might as well try something different. Pretty much. And isn't it sad (laughs) that so much joy gets missed because of that? Absolutely. We'll continue this conversation right after this brief message. You talk in the book about how time management is not the problem. I hear this, especially because I teach mindfulness. So I hear this every day. I don't have time. Why is time management not the problem? Well, it's an illusion, first of all. The idea that we can control time is an illusion. It's not actually true. And what is usually true is we are trying to do more than we are humanly capable of. And many women who consider themselves extremely busy are simply doing too much. And they are doing too much because they're convinced that that's what it takes to please the people around them and stay safe 
and you know show up responsibly. And I'm not saying we should all be irresponsible slobs and lie on the couch and never get up again. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there are ways to ask for support. You do not have to do everything at home and everything at work for everybody else. You do not have to overproduce. So many of us are, you know, a bit perfectionistic. It's it can be a lot simpler than it is. Some people that's not the issue. Some people have taken on too many responsibilities. Some people have a spouse who doesn't earn any money or won't help around the house or children who kind of blow them off and they find themselves doing everything if they want to live in a reasonably clean home, etc. And, you know, I have a Facebook group, the self-care group for extremely busy women, and that comes up a lot there. And it's great because it's like we need a cheering squad to help us reshuffle the deck so things work better. We deserve that. We do. It's really interesting, or it was interesting to me to see some of the numbers coming out about the impact on women from the pandemic because they even took on more. They were already carrying more of the load at home. And so when that all happened, they took on even more and it's, it's had an impact. So I'm- it has. And, and women are less represented in the workforce. And often there are a lot of women who had to stay home to raise their kids who did not want to be left behind by the workforce. So there's a lot of resentment there. It's like, OK, people were stepping up and doing what had to be done. And that is commendable and great. And now it's time to get back to you. And, you know, these things can be done. You can actually organize your life and create mini habits and schedules and whatever it takes to put this into play. But it isn't as simple as squeezing another hour out of the day. That's really my larger point. Actually, that brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You talk about doing over being. And it is hard to, I think it is sometimes, to grasp the concept that slowing down and just being actually helps you get more done. Mm. Um, I call it our do-do problem because <laughs> we're always <laughs> doing, right? Do-do-do. Um, but right. could you talk a little bit about that, about how that works? Yeah, it's about marshalling your energy. So if you know that, you know, there's a child who needs a costume made for a play and you know that you had to work late on that particular day and you know the spouse isn't going to show up and participate in making dinner or whatever would be helpful because maybe the spouse is under the gun or maybe just not a helper, whatever the case may be, you suddenly feel all this pressure. And so you also might be feeling a hell of a lot of anger and resentment. And suddenly you find yourself just frantically doing everything to just get through it. I remember that used to be me. And I used to say to myself, just put your head down and do it. You never have to do this again. And of course, I would do it again and again and again. And I I would agree to too much. And the idea behind being overdoing is sitting with the various responsibilities and saying, okay, now, is this really my job to make this costume? Maybe you could think of something fun to make for your own costume. And maybe we could sit around and brainstorm an idea and another possibility would emerge. And maybe the spouse would help you make the costume. <laughs> you know what I mean? And maybe instead of doing over being, that's about, you know, saying no and walking out the door at a reasonable hour, come what may, and not projecting into the future about, oh, this is going to come down on me. I'm going to be punished. This is going to be so bad. I'm going to lose. Now, 
when you be instead of do and you honor what's going through you in the moment, which may be the desire to say, I'm not ready to stay late for work. I have to go home now. Then you just stay silent. Okay. I got to go. Can't stay. And you don't project all of this made up stuff that fuels us to overdo. And you come home and you, you know, be with the question of the costume and be with the dinner. (laughs) The flow of life takes over and interesting things happen. People come out of the woodwork to say, wait a minute, my kid had that costume. It's like there are possibilities. And maybe making the costume would suddenly become a great joy. And that would become what uses your time and attention. What I'm suggesting here is that being is the process of tuning in and becoming quiet and listening and then figuring out which actions you do want to take, but not just wildly doing all of them at once. I've talked about this before where people think I'm a little nutty because if I bang into a doorway as I'm going Mm -hmm. through or I drop my keys, Mm -hmm. that's a sign to me right away I'm rushing. And mm-hmm. if I'm rushing, I'm doing whatever I'm doing mindlessly. Yeah. And I will literally, even if I'm running late, immediately stop, sit down, yeah. take a few deep breaths. I know. And, and the subtitle of this book is to uh, do less, achieve more and live the life you want. Because the idea is when you marshal your energy and you choose the things to do that really matter, that really matter, then you do create the life you want. Because I think one of the big things I discovered in that two-year period of not working was how much work and time I had put into things that were literally meaningless, that meant nothing to me. The money was made. The money was spent. It's all gone. There's nothing to show for it except that I was worn out and burned out. And, And I had a vaguely off feeling of doing something that wasn't really aligned. It wasn't correct for me. And then I had to live with, you know, a long period of uncertainty about, well, what would it be that you apply yourself to? What would it be that you put your day into? And what's interesting is work came to me unbidden, uh, an investor, a relative who was an investor who had followed my work for a long time, remembered a novel I had written 15 years earlier and called me up and said, I would like to invest in your career as a novelist and basically pay you to write fiction. And it has been so much fun. And I've been given this great gift of doing something that I am actually naturally good at, that I never would have chosen for myself. I would have thought that's impossible. I can't, I can't possibly make money doing that. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think one of the better things that have come out of this whole pandemic is that many more people than I've ever heard of are doing something similar where because they had that pause, it was forced on them, but they got that pause and then they are making changes. And so many people are quitting their jobs and starting new careers. So again, it's kind of like the crisis thing. You don't have to wait until you're in lockdown to make it, <laughs> to make those decisions. You could think about what you might enjoy doing and you can actually do it. I totally agree with that. And, and the fact is, Teresa, your body tells you every single day, every single minute and hour, what is working and what is not working in your own life. And if you doubt that, lie down on your bed, put your hands on your belly and ask yourself, what do I need right now? And clarity will come. If you notice you're angry, put your hands on your belly and find out what you're angry about. You know, I mean, Teal wrote about all of this in her journal. She, you know, she really believed in the power of the body to inform us on what our next steps should be. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's a key part of mindfulness and I use it extensively, my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned sometimes it just feels magical because it's like mm-hmm. better than the old, what are those little black eight balls? You know, you, oh, the eight ball. You <laughs> my body must be that. my age. <laughs> yeah. I'm dating myself. That was really pre-digital. <laughs> Can you talk about why people resist self-care? Oh yeah. Well, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's about this sense that it'll never get better. We don't deserve it. And also there's this funny thing about change. You know, this is classic with people, you know, making diet and exercise resolutions at the beginning of the year, but then you get to it and you actually have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to make changes and you begin like a little clever rat to convince yourself that it won't really make a difference. You know, I do this with yoga. I do yoga twice a week, but could I be doing it four or five times a week? Would I feel even better? Oh, yeah, I totally would. One of the things I found very useful in the book that I think is very effective is you talk about making small changes. The mini habits. Yes. And I think that related to what we were just talking about with, you know, why we resist change or why we resist self-care, that maybe that's the route to go is to understand it doesn't have to be a big chunk of your time. You can do these. No, no. And the mini habit is so great. It's actually kind of a psychological trick. It was developed by a guy who really was trying to get himself into the habit of doing 100 push-ups or 50 push-ups or whatever. And he couldn't get started. And he finally said, okay, I'm going to get down on the floor and do one push-up. Just one. (laughs) And lo and behold, he did 10. It was also easy to keep going because he was down on the floor already. And that's the power of the mini habits. So we say to ourselves, I will take a 10-minute walk at lunch. And we look at our watch and we walk for 10 minutes and we come back. And we notice, okay, that really wasn't so hard. And maybe I could stay out for 15 or 20 tomorrow. I don't know, though. All I have to do is 10 minutes. So it's like a baby steps approach to self-care when you're really a resistor. And I think the mini habits are really essential, especially because you find a time slot for them when they fit. And because it's a mini habit, it's 10 minutes. Who hasn't got 10 minutes in a day to give themselves some space? And if you haven't, you really need to sit down and have a little talk with yourself. Yeah, that's another sign, right? (laughs) Right. I also refer to myself as a recovering perfectionist, which you touched Mm -hmm. on earlier. Good. And I agree that it's absolutely exhausting. But for any of our listeners who haven't given up on the perfection idea, what advice would you give them? Because it's so, I know, and you know, I know because you've gone through this, it's uncomfortable to give that up. I mean, it's a little scary. Oh yeah, that's very well observed. It is yet another aspect of our uncomfortable comfort zone that we find ourselves in. And the big thing that we have to do around perfectionism is to see the reality of it. Because when you really are forced to look at how much time you put into something, or the fact you can't finish it, or the fact that you finished it after great effort, but you always thought it was kind of meh, you know, or that people praise you, or you win awards, or you get acknowledgments, and you can't take that in. Those are signs of our perfectionism, and we really need to confront the reality of that. For me, all that was true. I would work very, very hard at something and then be given professional accolades for it and just feel like, well, didn't really know how flawed I am. Those telltale signs are the place to look if you are feeling like a perfectionist, because once you tell the truth about the fact that you are overproducing and underappreciating what you've produced, 
then you can begin to rest and relax. And I think one of the big, big improvements that happened for me was understanding ultimately that everything is an experiment. This took so much pressure off of me because I didn't have to make everything perfect the first time I did it. I could just experiment. And, you know, I am raising a puppy. You probably heard her in the background. She's a six-month-old German Shepherd. And boy, I've gotten it wrong a lot. <laughs> I have not raised a puppy before. And this little dog um, will really tell you exactly what you're doing wrong all the time. And I have to keep trying things. If I, you know, go do this at 6.30 in the morning instead of that, you know, it's like, what's going to work best? We never know till we try. It's so true. That was kind of a confirmation for me that I was on the right track. Yeah. Um, over the years. So, and even this, the podcast started as, well, we'll just try it. We'll just do an experiment. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think my whole staff probably was horrified when I first started doing all this stuff. And it's like, no, we're just going to try this. And not everything succeeds. It doesn't matter because it was an experiment, right? So it was just something mm -hmm. you tried. It didn't work. You set it aside. Such a difference in life. Yeah. When you yeah, you don't family. have to finish things that aren't working out. I wanted to ask you, how do extremely busy women make time for meditation? Oh, you know, it's a great question because I wrestle with that myself. And you have to schedule it in. This is the power of putting things in your schedule. And I literally mean write it into your schedule. I was just thinking this morning, I was getting a little soft on my meditation practice because I've gotten very preoccupied with handling this puppy between about 5.30 and 7.30 in the morning and all the things that have to go into that. I thought, where am I going to fit that meditation? Because early in the day or right before bed, those are the times to really hit. Although a lunchtime meditation at your desk can also be a great thing. I would just say um, the thing you need to do is really pick a time and stick to it and use a meditation prop. I like something called Insight Timer, the Calm app. These things are on our phones. With Insight Timer, you can build a timer with sound effects and gongs and chimes and oh, it's lovely. And I've got a little trickling water and little wind and birds. And, you know, it's just, it's so nice. And then uh, it's not a Spartan, you know, sitting in Zen in silence, although that is powerful too for some people. But if you're a meditation resistor, that can be hard. I even like a practice called Yoga Nidra. You know, you can find some on Spotify. There's a woman named Julie Yogaressa, who I love. Her recordings are anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes. And you lie down on the floor and listen to this yogic relaxation, relax every single part of your body in a very meditative way. And uh, that just puts my whole nervous system into a total reset. And I sit up and I am just like reborn for the afternoon. <laughs> if I've had a tense morning, I'll do that midday. And that certainly counts as meditation. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, a lot of people don't have maybe a half an hour to sit and meditate every day. But any contemplative practice, right? Even if it's for five minutes or 10 minutes, you know, yeah. I, I agree with that. I have to do that a lot, break it up. But I also mm -hmm. agree with you on the scheduling. So yeah. if, when people see my calendar, I use it as a sample in workshops. So they see my mm -hmm. real calendar. When you first look at it, it looks horrifying. It looks like <laughs> every minute of the day is full. But I schedule reading time. I schedule meditation time. I yeah. schedule... Uh, lunchtime to make, because mm -hmm. I used to have a very bad habit of working through lunch. So it's yeah. on my, and by doing that, a lot of people think, well, then it's too structured or it's too rigid, but it's really not. It means I'm giving myself that gift of time mm 
to do something for me. And then in between there are meetings and podcasts and interviews and workshops, but it's in there every day. And I think without that, I would tend to slide into, well, I'm really busy now. I'll do that later. But well, exactly. I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, this is the time no, no. I'm supposed to be meditating. And then you don't have to feel guilty because we also have an auto guilt response often to, you know, doing things for ourselves. When we, when we have a child saying, hey, you know, I want you to get down on the floor and play Batman with me or whatever. Sometimes you do. And sometimes it's mommy time. So I know you have a very active Facebook group. Yes. Uh, so do you want to tell listeners how they can find that? The Facebook group is uh, just do a search for self-care. It'll pop right up. The self-care group for extremely busy women. We have 55,000 women from all over the world who are actively supporting each other to resolve the bumps and struggles and obstacles in their life that keep them from having great self-care and to inspire each other to have great self-care. Excellent. And of course, the book is out. Yes. So that's the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. Do less, achieve more, and live the life you want, which I wish everyone would do. Um, And I I have a podcast about this very subject as well. Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women. That's wonderful. I guess in closing, I would ask, do you have just a tip for how someone they're super busy. They're too busy. They, they realize they're not on the right track, but where do they even, where's the starting point? Like what's a good way to just get started? Even if it's again, a small step, what would you recommend? I would recommend right now, as you are at the end of this podcast, stand still and close your eyes and take three deep breaths and ask yourself, what do I need right now? It is a key question that we never ask ourselves. And try to repeat that as often as you think of it and find out what you need. And if you really don't know, do some journaling, take yourself for a walk where the dedicated purpose of the walk is to find out what do I need right now. And if you need to cry, cry. If you need to get mad, go, you know, go out in the woods and have a good yell. (laughs) Do whatever it takes to get the wheels turning so you will come back to yourself. Perfect. Yeah. The yelling thing works. I did. Yeah. No kidding. Right. I love it. Here in LA, you just roll the windows up in the car. I could scream for as long as I needed to (laughs) get it out of my system. I hear you. But I totally agree. Just checking in self-awareness, mindfulness, all of those things. When you take the time to really just check in, we're so busy externally. So that's lovely advice to just sit still for a minute and listen to yourself. That's great. It was a pleasure having you with us today. And I thank you so much. Thank you, Teresa. I loved our chat. You can see our full interview on our YouTube channel, and you'll find a link to her book on our website at worktolivewell.org. You can find out more about Suzanne at SuzanneFalter.com, and you can join her self-care group for Extremely Busy Women on Facebook. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills.
paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access all podcasts and interviews. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, Media Right Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions, 